What I'd like to talk about tonight is the, um, the yogi and the householder. It often seems that the, the life of a yogi and the life of a householder or a layperson really are worlds apart, that there's a vast gap between them. And it's very easy for us to define the life of a yogi, the life of a retreatant, as being a spiritual life. It's probably also not so difficult for us also to define a, a household life or a life of activity as being a worldly life. This is the traditional distinction. A yogi life has all the forms and all the symbols that we equate with being spiritual. We see the capacity to be endlessly single-pointed, to be removed from the world and the demands from the world, to live a life where there's an absence of interaction and greater austerity, and a life of intensive meditation. All of these fit into our kind of model of what a spiritual life is. And it seems that the symbols and the forms in our own lives are diametrically opposed to the symbols and forms of the spiritual life. It may be very hard for us to remember even the last time when we felt we were really single-pointed. We find ourselves engaging really often without any choice and almost constant interaction. And times of intensive sitting and walking meditation probably exist basically as fond memories. When we take away the forms and the symbols that we equate with the spiritual life, what often happens is that we can lose a sense of spiritual meaning, a sense of a spiritual foundation in our own lives when those forms and those symbols are absent. It's obvious that the forms and the symbols of an intensive retreat life and the forms of the symbols of a person in the world are radically different. But I don't feel myself that that difference implies that the qualities that are needed to bring richness and to bring a sense of spiritual meaning to either form are very different at all. If you were to invite a nun or a monk into your household and ask them to do all the things that you do, ask them to look after your families and to care for your household and to care for all the things that were involved in keeping your life together. What qualities would that nun or monk need to do that well, to do it in a caring way or to do it in a loving way? Clearly that nun or that monk would be called upon to develop a boundless patience and a very boundless equanimity. That nun or monk would be asked to develop extraordinary depths of acceptance and discipline. That nun or monk would also be asked to develop a real capacity for renunciation and for calmness, 
for mindfulness and also for a quality of devotion and faith. If you were to put yourself into a monastery tomorrow and then engage in an intensely contemplative life where your sole object was to explore really the depths of your inner being to develop awareness, to develop real mindfulness, what qualities would you need to do that really well? To do it really totally and fully? There would be inner resources we, you would need to call upon, that I would need to call upon. We would need to know how to really develop patience and equanimity. We would have to know how to really call upon from within ourselves real depths of wisdom and compassion. We would need to know how to bring about a real sense of renunciation and calmness and faith. The qualities that are needed to bring a sense of spiritual meaning, a spiritual foundation to any form of life, any, any, any expression of life, really don't differ. What often differs is the conscious intention of mind. When you go into a retreat, as many of you have done before, you go into it aware that you will be asked to do certain things and willing inwardly to do certain things. We know that we'll be asked in that situation to be conscious and to use many of the things that arise from within ourselves and from the retreat environment basically as teachers and as teachings. We would see the challenge of a retreat as an opportunity to deepen in certain qualities within ourselves. That's what a retreat is all about. It's about that inner exploration and deepening. We would encounter our reactions in a retreat. We encounter our conditioning. We encounter our expectations. It's certainly not that yogis in retreats never experience anger, resistance, avoidance, impatience, or resentment. All of those happen. But the form of a retreat, the very outer form, means that we're inclined not to look upon those feelings so much as obstacles. Rather, we feel more benevolent and we feel more inclined to look, of those, look upon those difficult experiences within ourselves as opportunities to open our hearts, as opportunities to develop acceptance and patience. We see them as opportunities to deepen in equanimity and mindfulness. Because in the very form of a retreat, what happens when things arise from within ourselves and are mirrored by the practice, that very mirror, mirroring teaches us certain things about ourselves that we feel open to learning. The difficulties in intensive meditation tend to teach us about the ways that we hold on to things, the ways that we close down, the ways that we dwell or limit, limit ourselves. And often there's then that sense of benevolence that as these feelings arise, we also have the opportunity to let go. For many reasons in our own lives, it becomes harder to see the difficult 
as opportunities to open, as challenges to developing greater acceptance and equanimity. It's often harder in our lives when we take the forms away to really welcome the challenging and the difficult as spiritual opportunities. It's not that there's anything different arising, but the form is different. And so our relationship to what arises also tends to go through a change. Instead, we tend to regard the, the feelings of anger or impatience or resistance that arise not as being vehicles to new depths within ourselves. Instead, often we regard them and the causes of them simply as something to get rid of or as burdens to bear or they become vehicles for judgment, for judging ourselves or for judging others. One of the factors that, diff that is different when we take the forms away, what really changes is that we don't have the support. We don't have the nourishment. What we really tend to miss is the inspiration of the form that helps us to embrace the difficult in life as experiences that can be rich in possibilities. And often with that, that losing of inspiration, what goes with it is that sense of spiritual meaning and spiritual significance in our relationships and in the form of our lives. To me, it seems that it is that sense of spiritual meaning. It is that sense of spiritual significance that makes any form of life rich, whether we're in a monastery or whether we're in the suburbs of a city. When that sense of spiritual significance dies down or gets suffocated, then even the most idyllic retreat situation becomes a spiritual desert. You know, many people in intensive meditation talk about that hitting that dry patch or that plateau where they just feel like they're going through the motions. They sit and they walk and they do it for many hours of the day. But it seems to be missing some kind of spark. It can happen in a monastery. It can happen in an intensive retreat. It can happen in the nature of our own lives. When it happens in our own lives, then living, or the very days, the very process of living, can easily become, too, a process of coping, just reacting to whatever arises in the moment, rather than feeling that we're growing through it. I think it's so important for us to really deeply be able to acknowledge in ourselves that wisdom and compassion that that sense of spiritual meaning isn't the territory of any special form. It's not the territory of any special lifestyle or any special environment. That sense of spiritual meaning comes from within ourselves. It's something that we can keep alive within ourselves. It's not only saintly and holy people who deepen in insight or who deepen in wisdom and compassion. 
It's certainly not only a Gandhi who can practice great patience, or a Buddha who can forgive, or a Dalai Lama who can make great sacrifice and find great richness in that sacrifice. Our lives, the very nature of our lives, I feel, are an invitation to deepen in those qualities of being that bring richness. The very nature of our lives, which entails so much challenge, so much having to extend our own boundaries, that's an invitation to reach within ourselves to really learn how to discover new depths of patience, new depths of equanimity, and a real new sense of what it means not to be just spiritually awake, but what it means to be awake as a partner, as a parent, as a child, as a human being in every area of our lives. When we can do that, when we can see our lives as an invitation, I feel what happens is that we can discover that quality of meaning, that quality of significance that makes it possible for us to consciously embrace everything in our lives as a vehicle to learning. Wisdom is such a curious phenomenon. It's very clear that understanding and that insight and that wisdom is much, much more than just an intellectual attainment. We all know that we can know a lot. In fact, it seems endless what we can know, the amount of information, the number of facts, the number of formulas and prescriptions that it's possible for us to accumulate. And it's probably also clear to us that knowing a lot doesn't necessarily mean being able to transform a great deal. It's very clear that insight and that understanding is something much deeper than just a possession of the mind that's in, in, that holds a number of facts. For example, when we come to, to conflict in our lives, I mean, when we look at the times we experience conflict, whether it's repeated conflict or momentary conflict, often we really don't have to search very far for the cause. It's most, most often it's very clear to us in our lives, at least on the level of knowing what the relation is between conflict and difficulty and the causes within ourselves. When we look at the times of peace in our lives and happiness, it's also not difficult for us to know what brings peace and what brings happiness. Our own stories and our own experiences tell us again and again and again what leads to alienation, what leads to anger, and what leads to pain. And our own stories and experiences also tell us on so many different levels where to find joy, where to find connectedness, how to find peace in our lives. 
But that knowing, clearly on an intellectual level, is very different from learning the lessons of our stories, from really being able to listen to our inner experiences so that they really are our teachers. It's also, I feel, really important to, to, to see that understanding something in itself is not magical. You know, there's so that really common experience on retreats where, you know, many people find that they come to a certain amount of insight. They really see something so clearly about what brings conflict, what brings pain, and what brings suffering. And then they leave a retreat and there's that feeling, that very common feeling of losing one's insights, you know, or losing one's understanding because we fall, seem to fall back in the same old traps or the same old holes that captured us before. But I think that too much then is invested just in that initial seeing and it's seen to be somehow some sort of magical benediction. I think probably we need to take it a step farther and to see really that, that for all of us, insight is only liberating if it's applied that insight only leads to freedom and to awakening and to peace if our lives are in harmony with what we actually know and understand. You know, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is, is centered around the Four Noble Truths, you know, and, and the first three are really easy for us to see, that there is dissatisfaction in different levels in life, that there is a cause to it. We're very happy about the third noble truth, that there's a possibility of an end. It's the fourth one that's often very sticky, that there's a path to the end. And that path actually means the application of insight. And it's in that fourth one, I feel, that that connection between knowing and understanding, that's the place where it easily gets lost. I feel when we do begin, actually, as well as we can to apply what we understand to be true, then the obstacles we meet in our lives really become opportunities for the application of insight. Patience, I mentioned, is one of the great qualities. It is one of the greatest spiritual gifts the quality of patience. We need it in meditation. We need it so much in our lives. And what is patience for us? Patience surely is just the willingness, the real wholehearted willingness to stay connected just with what is, to stay connected with actuality without resistance, without denial and without judgment. What happens when we are impatient? What are we actually saying to ourselves or saying to other people when we find ourselves really ensnared by impatience? What we're actually saying is, I don't want. I can't accept what is happening or you or myself. What we're actually saying is, I want something to finish that is actually happening. Or I want something to start that hasn't actually started to happen. 
what we're actually saying when we're entangled in impatience is how disconnected we feel from the present moment, from the person that we're with, from what we are experiencing within ourselves. And what does that impatience do? It takes us, the more entangled we are with it, is the more it takes us away from the present moment, the further it leads us into disconnection from another person outside, from a situation, or a greater disconnection from ourselves. Or impatience takes us to past, fond memories, or to future, hopeful expectations, or to fantasy. And what does patience do? What is our experience of patience? The effect that it has in our lives. It allows us to open. It allows us to see in a deeper way the resistances, the expectations, the level of control that we're holding on to. It allows us to open our hearts to embrace the moment with a greater sense of compassion and grace. That is essentially what patience does do. And it's rare to find impatience without expectation, without a lot of shoulds, or without a lot of judgment. And all of that is such a heavy burden that we can carry in our lives that denies understanding. You know, we often, it's often not until we really sit still that we find out what a prominent role the inner judge places in our, plays in our lives. Someone in the last retreat I taught here spoke about their inner judge as a kind of sniper who sits on their shoulder and they're always primed to fire. You know, something happens, they don't like, boom, that, that one's gone. You know, something arises, they don't like within themselves, it's another judgment for that, and that one's dismissed. And we really see that our judgments, judgments never actually bring us closer to anyone or to anything. And that's a hard lesson to learn. It's a hard lesson for us to learn. Patience isn't magical. It's not like we, we suddenly fall over it one day and we're suddenly from that point on endlessly patient. Patience is not even a result of some great insight or revelation or some kind of blessing. I feel patience for us. It is a practice. It's a practice for which there is no shortage of opportunities for us to apply. It's a story of, of Gurdjieff when he was living in France. He had a community that he led, a spiritual community he led in France. And there was one old man who lived in the community who was a personification of difficulty. He was irritable, messy, he fought with everyone, he objected to everything, he was unwilling to clean up after himself, and he was absolutely no help at all. Now, no one got along with him. And finally, after many frustrating months, the old man left for Paris, and most of the members of the community breathed this massive sigh of relief. It's over. We can now be happy. We can now get our community together. Lo and behold, to their surprise, Gurdjieff followed this character and tried to convince him to return. 
but it had been too hard for the man. And, and, the, and the old man said, no, I won't come. And at last, Gurdjieff said, look, I need you. And he offered the old man a very huge monthly stipend so that he would come back to the community. How could the old man refuse? He took it and he returned. He arrived the next day with his bags packed. And when he returned, everybody else in the community was absolutely aghast. And on hearing that he was being paid, while they were being charged a lot to be there, they all got up in arms. And Gurdjieff called them all together. And after hearing their complaints, he explained. He said, this old man is like yeast for the bread. He said, without him, you would never really learn about anger, about patience, and about compassion. And that's why you pay me and why I hire him. <laughs> How many opportunities do we have to practice patience, to practice compassion, and to practice open-heartedness? if we can remember to do so. How many times do we find with our children that it just isn't working out the way that we want it to, that things aren't happening as fast as we want them to, that they're not the people that we want them to be? How many times with our partners do we find ourselves snipey or impatient, ex filled with expectation? And how many times with ourselves really remembering that this inner relationship, it truly is the microcosm of every other relationship. We would not be impatient or filled with impatience for everyone else or for anyone else if we didn't hold that same relationship to ourselves. Where do we start with patience? with our judgments towards ourselves, with our own frustrations, with our own expectations, with our own ideas about how we should be. And what happens? What really happens when we're able to withdraw our judgments about what is wrong, about what is imperfect? Do we not then really let go of so many veils do we not, in withdrawing our judgments, just let go of so many filters in our lives and find ourselves coming closer to the heart of ourselves, to the heart of everything, and to the heart of everyone else? When we're able to connect with that quality of patience, to withdraw our judgments. What we discover is a kind of patience where we don't need the conformity of anyone else or of ourselves to make us happy. Where we don't need the conformity, the order, and the fulfillment of expectation in order to calm our own needs and demands. Patience is a practice. It's a practice of learning to listen to the moment. It's a practice of learning to listen through our judgments, through our frustration. It's a practice of listening really in the midst of confusion and in the midst of chaos. 
It's all right when everything is smooth and calm in our lives. It's all right to say, you know, I feel wonderfully patient and forget about the other times. The times when we're really actually called upon to practice that withdrawal of judgment is in the times of difficulty, the times of chaos and confusion. A lot is born of that learning to listen. A quality of calmness and openness and a quality of acceptance. And we talked a bit about it today. Acceptance is not an easy word for us because at times there are many things that are unacceptable that call for us to respond clearly, to act, to make visible our objections in very tangible ways. But even that call for response and that need for action, it still doesn't deny the need for acceptance. What I feel acceptance is, real acceptance, it's that it's the absence of denial and the absence of rejection and the absence of resistance. And the absence of those actually empowers us to act clearly. The absence of rejection and denial empowers us to respond clearly and effectively in our lives. If you've ever been in a situation where there's something that's really hard to accept, where you really object to something in another person or in a situation in your life, you might have experienced that as long as we're entangled in anger, or as long as we're entangled in, in rejection and denial, basically what happens is that we become quite paralyzed. We can't act anymore. We can't speak clearly anymore. We can't even convey at times with any clarity what we actually see to be amiss and that needs changing because we're so caught up in the intensity and the charge of our own anger and feelings. And instead of response, we find ourselves just reacting. And what happens to our relationships or situations that we're in that we want to change when we come from that place of intensity of anger or rejection inwardly? The effect is so often one just of creating further division and further alienation and further distance. Acceptance is a difficult word for us because it's often hard for us to accept ourselves. When we don't accept, learn how to embrace what is with an open heart, with compassion. We find ourselves instead always struggling, not only with our children or our partners or ourselves, we also just find ourselves at war with the present moment. And when we're struggling, there's not a lot of room in our hearts. There's not a lot of room in our hearts to listen or to understand or to empathize with the experience of, an of another because our hearts are full of our own reactions and the intensity of our own rejection and anger. Acceptance is really nothing more than learning how to make room and how to make space in our hearts. It's really nothing more than that. 
that there is always something beyond what we first see, trusting that there's always some avenue of understanding, trusting in the power of, of compassion and of loving kindness to heal, and knowing that anger really just does separate. Acceptance, I feel, really comes out of that trust. It certainly doesn't make us paralyzed or make us a marshmallow in our lives, but it allows us to be clear because we have space within ourselves to hold another person in their experience. It's, not, it's about generosity. Acceptance is about generosity. There's always a place for generosity. There are many times when people are not the people we want them to be. There are many times when we are not the person we want ourselves to be. And as long as we seek perfection or demand perfection, our hearts are always going to be a little crowded because there's always going to be that filter between ourselves and another person. When we see the imperfection in ourselves and others, we have a lot of different feelings about it. We feel sad, we feel angry, we feel insecure. We try to control. Sometimes we become so habitual or so entangled in our strategies around the imperfect that we forget that one simple gift of learning how to make space in our hearts for another and how much that in itself can bring about change. Renunciation, being able to let go, is really the heart of the spiritual life. And one of the major expressions of being able to let go is the willingness to let go of control. To willing, the willingness to let go of that sense of having to be the director, having to be in charge, having to be on top of everything. It's very hard for us to do. Control becomes a part of our lives. It becomes a way of feeling safe, a way of protecting ourselves against the unpredictable and pain. And yet it also becomes a way of bringing more pain because if our lives teach us one single lesson again and again, it's the lesson that letting go brings lightness and freedom and spaciousness to our lives. And holding brings contraction and closing down and division. Everything in our lives teaches us that lesson again and again and again. Letting go doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean irresponsibility. It certainly doesn't mean not caring. It means being willingness to open. When a person goes into a monastery or an intensive retreat, they know how much letting go is going to be asked of them. And renunciation is, is really taken upon themselves as a, as a conscious practice, that there's a virtue in it, that it's a vehicle to learning and understanding. In families, I feel, in the form of our lives, Renunciation is an unavoidable aspect of our existence. It is simply unavoidable. We don't have that kind of choice. If 
you think as a parent or as a partner, you know, well, maybe this will involve a bit of letting go. Uh-uh. It involves an enormous amount of letting go, levels that we weren't always prepared for. When you enter, when we entered into a, a family form of living, we didn't know that we were going to be living a life of a renuncia. And yet on many levels, that is what is asked of us. Think of the many things that we are asked to let go of as parents and as partners. Choice. How much choice do you have about many things in your lives? When you feel like having a bit of time alone, you just say to everyone, yes, would you please, you know, take off your two-year-old child, you know, feel like a bit of peace now? Choice is forget it. You say to your teenager, you know, do you mind leaving me alone for a few days? You know, I need a bit of space. Forget it. You don't have that level of choice. Often we have no choice at all but to be totally present with what is actually happening in the moment. Time and personal space. Even with young children, your bodies, that sense of your body being your own, you have to let go of. Personal space you have to let go of. That sense of being in control. How many times do you make plans? You know, the idyllic plan. How many of us have not been in that situation where we make the idyllic plan? You know, we've got this nice vacation planned, you know, this really nice place and everything's arranged and it totally falls apart. How many times do you make an idyllic plan, you know, for some lovely time together and everybody's grouchy? You know, an idyllic meal. How many times do we find that we simply have to let go of so many of our ideas of control. It's not easy for us. And yet the willingness to undertake it as a means of growth and as a means of learning means that we have incredible access to equanimity. It's hard to see these things as gifts. And yet it really opens us up to levels of equanimity that are possible for us. Sure, we can fall apart. And we all do that sometimes. We just fall apart. We dissolve as everything else dissolves until we see it just doesn't make any difference. And then often we are encouraged to reach just a little bit deeper. And what underlies that? What is possible for us? We begin to sense what quality of equanimity is really possible. Letting go is the vehicle for equanimity. That we learn, actually, that there is a place within ourselves that is really not so profoundly shaken by change, by the dissolution of plans, by the letting go of control that there can be a place within ourselves that can embrace this. This is what meditation's about. It is, it is what living with an open heart is about. The Buddha had a lot to say about letting go. One of the things that he had to say, which is so interesting, is that holding and having and possessing and being in control they are all things that are called blissful by the unwise. And the unwise see 
letting go and aloneness and renunciation as suffering. Whereas those who are wise see it the opposite way around. They see as blissful what has previously been called suffering. It's one of those switches that awareness makes in our lives. What we used to call blissful, being in control, being in possession, having and holding, we come to see is actually suffering. What we used to call suffering, letting go, not being in control, being open and vulnerable, we learn to see as being joyful. And that that is the teaching, basically, of letting go. It's not indifference, it's not uncaring. It's learning a place of calmness and balance within ourselves, of being connected with what peace actually is, and really knowing that, that peace is not the absence of challenge, that peace is not a destination we arrive at when we retire, that peace is not a place we arrive at when our children have left home, that peace is not the absence of the threatening, that peace really is the capacity to be with what is without prejudice, that peace really is the capacity to be just with what is without resistance, without prejudice, without denial. And with that, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of chaos, we know a place of calmness within ourselves. And in that place of calmness, we also have a sense of spiritual meaning in our lives. A sense of really nurturing not only our own well-being, but the well-being of others. A sense of creativity and of contributing in visible ways to the deepening of compassion, the deepening of understanding. And with that sense of spiritual meaning, Everything in our lives also has meaning because it is or becomes in itself a vehicle for understanding. Thank you. We have just two minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.